Welcome to Dialogues with the Past, a High Point University history podcast dedicated to delving into the past and learning from historical experts worldwide. I am Mac Mullins, a history major and enthusiast. Today, I am joined by High Point University's instructor in history, Dr. Andrew Tsvaras. It's a pleasure to have you here, Dr. Tsvaras. Thank you, Mac. You know, I have to say it's a real pleasure to finally not, you know, not only see where this podcast is made, but also be featured on it. I've heard so much about it, and I'm very excited to be here and, and, and have this dialogue <laughs> with you. I'm very excited. <laughs> well, I'm really happy to have you here. I, I, I've been uh, waiting to, I've been really excited to discuss this topic. So uh, without further ado, I'll give a little bit of an introduction. Sure. So during the late 14th century, the Italian peninsula entered into an artistic, economic, and cultural golden age known as the Renaissance. Commerce and new areas of human thought exploded onto the scene and made Italy into one of the wealthiest regions in not only Europe, but arguably the entire world. Because of this, however, the Italian peninsula, which was divided into a multitude of city-states, would soon become prey to the external powers seeking to capitalize off of the region's wealth. Today, we will be discussing the later half of the conflict known as the French-Italian Wars, a series of wars that would embroil not only Italy, but the entire Mediterranean Sea. So now, Dr. T, please briefly describe the social and political landscape of the Italian peninsula leading up to the wars. Well, so first of all, Mac, I have to say, as as my student, well done, okay? <laughs> well done in setting it up. I mean, you're absolutely correct. Italy is this gold mine in all sense, whether it's in goods, uh, in in art, in culture, in knowledge. Um, and But, of course, that's also in terms of political opportunities. And these city-states, we should also not lose sight of those city-states are then comprised of usually a few very prominent families also vying for power. And so Italy is just this increasingly complex mosaic of, of rival families um, and political intrigue and, of course, wanting to um, play off these larger powers, being most notably in this instance France and Spain, um, playing them off each other to then benefit them at the more local level against some of these rival families. And so when this war erupts, it, it's, it's yes, it's a conflict. Some people are experiencing this. Again, it's in Italy. It's this war between France and Spain in Italy. And so people's homes are, you know, <laughs> being, you know, ravaged in, in various ways. But also many people are seeing this as an opportunity to ascend the ranks, whether that's uh, through wealth, but also in political power as well. So we uh, t uh, in modern day, we always interpret Italy as, you know, a united nation. Could you give a little bit of a picture of what these city states would look like? So, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, again, I think this also goes when I talk about ancient Greece as well in my classes, because, you know, we, we have in our mind the country of Italy in this case. And we need to understand that Italy is not a united country until the late 19th century uh, with the Risorgimento. And even that was very controversial at the time. There were people not really wanting to be a part of Italy. Italy is very, uh, historically, has been very much 
locally tied. There's a lot of local dialects, even to this day. You can go to different parts of Italy, and the language, like especially if you, Venice and Tuscany, very different Italian dialects. Um, the standard Italian is Tuscan, so I can say as a researcher, if you know modern Italian, it is helpful when you're looking at the Florentine perspective that, in general, you can more or less understand it. But other parts of Italy, and that would have been, it's going to be a different story, and that would have certainly been the case um, historically as well, that, that, that they very much are going to see themselves, again, just as the ancient Greeks would have seen themselves as almost different countries, um, and, and within those different countries, there are, as there are today, even in our own country, different factions and different families vying for power and influence. And it's and it goes all the way down to the very local level of those families then needing the support of of their, we'll say, in the kind of medieval sense, vassals and tenants and and and, and so on. So it's a, it's it's what makes this period both interesting but also extremely complicated is that intricate again as i said mosaic of political power family power and 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 the way that both their rich history because again we have to understand some of these families have been in power since maybe ancient roman times and then some through the medieval period with these city state governments emerging have have ascended the ranks and different and then the renaissance again had also been a renaissance for some of these families to ascend the ranks through uh, maybe what we could, uh, in rudimentary view, look at kind of early capitalism and 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 and, and, mer- and mercantilism, if you will, and, and and ascending the ranks that way. So, in the late fifteenth century, conflicts emerged between these city states that we just discussed mm-hmm. and the Kingdom of France. Um, so, this would mark the beginning of the French Italian Wars. Uh, could you uh, describe what instigated this? So, well, really, to tell you the truth, you can actually trace this back all the way to the 13th century, in the 1200s, um, that uh, essentially that there were claims that relatives of the French and Spanish crowns could claim uh essentially kingship or some sort of lordship over Naples and southern Italy and Sicily. And that, I mean, that area had been intertwined. I mean, southern Italy is fascinating, uh, Naples and Sicily particularly, I'm speaking of. It's At different points in its history, of course, it was, you know, way back it was Carthage and Rome fighting over it, and then it was um, in more in the medieval period. In the early, in the early medieval period, you have like um, uh, the the Muslims powers moving into Sicily. Um, you have the Normans. You have. Um, the Holy Roman Empire, the, the, and of course, let's not lose sight of the locals that are living there. So it's really this, this, this cultural and historical melting pot of civilizations and things with this rich history. And so this is all sort of never able to be put to bed. And that's sort of what's happening here is this, these, the, these ambitious rulers of France and Spain once again kind of dig up the paperwork, sometimes making it up to try to revitalize these ancient claims to this to this territory in Italy, and then it's just going to play into the so it's both using the past their their past and then their contemporary situation and, and building those off to justify their actions in this ascent for wealth and power. So ultimately, in this first portion of the French-Italian Wars, the French are forced out uh, by a uh, uh, by the Italians in uh, in the early 16th century. So, what caused this? Well, it's sort of a you'll see this happen throughout the Italian Wars. That I mean, wars cost money. Wars wars cost manpower. Uh, there's leadership changes. Kings 
pass pass away and come and go. So you actually you see this happen throughout, and that was it was one of those instances. It's power changes, exhausted resources, and they have to come to the negotiating table. And so that's 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 really the, that's the, that's in layman's terms. That's the short answer to the question. So ultimately, it seems that uh, mainly resources and uh, kings dying. Um, but it seems in 1515, Francis I, who uh, many uh, historians seem to associate with Henry VIII, uh, was crowned king of France. So who was he as a person and how did his impact, his uh, kingship impact France's relationship? Well, so he was fixated on this idea of France, France French rule over Italy. Uh, you'll see this as well with the French kings, that sometimes they're taking this more seriously than the others. And in fact, we could probably then look again, maybe uh, sort of the same time, you know, within the past century, the Hundred Years' War, you know, same thing. It's like different different kings have different ambitions and different levels of interest in, 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 in these in these age-old feuds. And so uh, Francis was very much a revitalization of this interest in Italy and really uh, was dead set in, in, in trying to establish French control um, the issue was, so you mentioned Henry VIII, another big character who's on the scene at this time is this is the exact period of the ascent of Emperor Charles V of of the Holy Roman Empire and then also Carlos I of Spain. And gen- we usually refer to him as Charles V in historiography. But Charles V, I always say he was, for his time, there were already some powerful guys and Charles V was just a new level. And so Francis I, as much as he really wants to paint himself you know, as as someone capable of establishing a French hold on Italy, with Charles V's vast resources, it's it's uh, it's another story. It's a huge obstacle he has to overcome. So, what role did the Italian city states play in this excursion of Francis? They are they're key. They're key. Uh, Francis and Charles, and then Francis. Looking forward, Francis and Henri or Henry II. They rely heavily on the Italian state, these local families for conducting war. Cause you have to understand like if you need troops, okay, you can, you can transport them into Italy. And in some cases they're doing that, but they're also feeding into the local networks. These, again, these families have tenants, they have vassals, they have retainers, they have connections to mercenary companies and they're playing. It's like a, it's like business. It's like business dealing. You know, I think Italy has this stereotype of, you know, the family and the mafia and all that. And really, in a sense, you know, that's a, you know, it's a, it's an archetype uh, cliche. But at the same time, it's also, it's hitting at a truth that in Italy, um, it's, it's a, um, it's a different political game that I don't think either of these sovereign rulers were actually prepared for. To deal with that, mm-hmm. they're get, there's a lot of double dealing, and there's and and they're sometimes getting played, as we would say in our modern language, and and uh, and uh, so for Francis to conduct this campaign, you know, he's 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 tried to assert himself in Naples. He's trying to assert himself also in northern Italy in the Piedmont, and this is eventually steam is going to run out. Uh, by the, I don't want to jump too far ahead in your in your narrative, Mac. But by the 1540s, it's clear that there's a, uh, you know, it's it's it, they're they're running out of juice. You know, after 20 years of fighting back and forth, they're running they're, they're running out of steam and some got to take a reprieve and kind of get and kind of get their bearings again. So uh, Francis actually, uh, it seems that uh, 
He was ultimately repelled and forced into a treaty, the Treaty of Madrid. Now, could you tell me a little bit of why he was forced into this treaty? Well, so that's a very good question, Mac. And I would say, again, he's going up against Charles V. <laughs> and, 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 and Charles V is someone who ends up, he basically, Charles V just cleans house. Charles V conquers uh, all the big places. He, conquer, he ends up conquering um, Florence later, but the big place he gets is, is Rome in 1527. And so moving ahead towards this, um, it's, it's, you know, Francis is, is, it's clear to him that Charles V has the strategic position. He's, he's steamrolling into Italy and gaining the key alliances. Um, the, the, um, the, 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 the Genoese are going to be one that's key for him because the Genoese are, are, um, They've they've been with France for a while, but they're starting to see hey Charles is gaining momentum, and and so they're wanting to switch 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 sides. That's a key thing. Like I said, conquering Florence down the road is going to be a big thing, uh, and of course, conquering Rome is is a huge landmark for Charles, and this is really helping cement him sort of as his image of like a Roman emperor and a Roman conqueror. So some of it's 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 political pressure. It's and it's practical, logistical resource pressure that Fra- that Francis is feeling at this time, and really, I think, kind of getting a sense that he's going to need. Uh, he's really reassessing the situation, realizing that he needs a new alliance, mm. and so he's willing to negotiate with Charles for the t- for a temporary peace. That's the thing. They're going to say it's a finalized peace, but it, it's never final. It's always going to continue. So uh, it, it, this, what you uh, mentioned uh, is that, you know, um, that there were these ever-changing alliances. It, it almost seems like a proxy war in some sorts where uh, both uh, France's and the Holy Roman Empire's conflict uh, are resolving their conflicts through playing in Italy almost. Absolutely. And then this is even the case during these peace times. After independent these peace trees, there's all kinds of I mean, shenanigans afoot, assassinations, revolts, uh, and again, France and it will say France and Spain, or more appropriately, Francis and Charles, and then Francis's son Henri and Charles. You know, they're 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 not going to be in direct conflict with one another, but they're using these, like you said, it's a proxy war. They're using these families. They're playing into these rivalries. Um, they're instigating, uh, again, uh, leaders to get assassinated and, and, and et cetera, and, and, and trying to install rulers that they want to be in charge of these key territories. Um, so this is, this, that's certainly a very accurate way of looking at it. So during war and during peace, uh, it is, it is the, the, even though these small families in Italy, maybe in the big picture of the globe, in their size of the areas they control, maybe seem to us in our modern perspective insignificant, they were key to the conflict because they represent a network of, of political capital and real capital money, troops, materials, Etc. So I mean, it's that you're absolutely correct in seeing it as a proxy, as a proxy war, and 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 it hinged, it hinged upon both sides, hinged upon their alliances at all levels, whether we're talking big state alliances or with individual families. So uh, let's move on to uh, what uh, you'd say would be your area of expertise, the lay, the very late part of the uh, French Italian Wars. So. 
Uh, can we first talk about um, what is the state of war during this time? All right, that's a great question, Mac. And I, I would actually, I would like to address the answer to that question both in terms of the historiography and the history. So, up to this point, you and I have been discussing the early part of the war. We'll say roughly from the late 15th century up through 1520s, 1530s. Mm-hmm. That's, for some reason, historiographically, that's the part that's been covered extensively. Um, the Siege of Rome, for example, and Charles V's conquest of Rome, that's a, that's a key moment in, term, in terms of, of, of uh, you know, really, look, it looks as if Charles has won. And I think, in general, historians have been like, okay, he won. You know, we see that the conflict goes on for a few more decades, but let's just move on from there. When really and truly... Um, uh, the Charles conquers Rome. Um, the, Fr- the French do eventually reinstigate conflict. They especially try to move into Piedmont. Um, in the meantime, Charles has a, the one key ally that Charles has gained is not only Genoa now, but in Florence, he has reinstated the Medici family in charge. So the Medici is very famous. There's a Netflix series on them, and those are the 15th century Medici. Well, these are the 16th century Medici, and the Medici in that interim period had been rulers of Florence, had been exiled from Florence, uh, and they're a powerful family. Some see them as an upstart. Some see them as, you know, legitimate. And Charles appointing them is is something that they're going to be a key player in his war effort because Tuscany's in central Italy. It gives him access to the north. It gives him access to the south. Medici have relatives in the church. The Medici have business connections, and so it's a that's a key thing. So at this point, so by so by fifteen forty four, um, Charles and Francis have reached a new peace, the Peace of Crepy, fifteen forty four. In in at that point, it's it's about uh, I'd say a good four or five years before any official conflict is going to reignite. Now the war doesn't restart officially till a little while later, but within so what you have is one of these periods where it's a peacetime, 1540s, it's a peacetime, but the the uh the French are making uh you know, making moves conspiracies against the Doria clan in Genoa, is one of these powerful families in Genoa. They're they're trying to they're messing around in Lucca. They're messing they're messing around throughout Italy, causing these these revolts and these and then also a, they're also instigating um, issues in Naples as well. So the thing we have to understand is that by this point, Naples, southern Italy, is now firmly in control of Spain, and the Spanish have established it as a vice royalty. And so, so it is. It is very Spanish, and and the French are trying to. This is also the period of the Reformation, and the French are even playing off of some of the Reformation stuff and getting people to revolt against Spanish Inquisition, for example. With Spain's presence comes the Inquisition and revolts against that. So the French are just finding every angle they can. And another big angle that the French had acquired by the late 1530s and early 1540s is an alliance with Sultan Suleiman the, the, the first, the Magnificent. In the Ottoman Empire, and Sultan Suleiman was a was probably was arguably the world's most powerful military at the time, and was had a major uh, rivalry with Charles V in moving into Central Europe from you know from Turkey into Central Europe, but also Suleiman had some really good connections with the North African corsairs, 
and had built up this understanding. And at this is the moment, the 1540s is the key moment where one of the most famous, if not the most famous North African Corsair of all time, Barbarossa, is is on the scene. And the French are in such connections with Suleiman and Barbarossa, they're allowing the Ottomans to harbor in Toulon and Marseille in between campaigns. So you literally have an Ottoman fleet of pirates docked and harbored in in basically the near near the Tyrrhenian Sea, just ready to pounce on Italy when the campaign season starts again. And so this the situ the intensity has amplified. You have an entrenched Spanish, or if we want to use it more general, Habsburg presence in Italy. You have Charles V with these key alliances in Genoa and in the Medici in Florence. But then you have as well the French and the Ottomans with the North African corsairs. So it, it really it's interesting to me that this is not something that's been as heavily. I mean, I'm, it's been as heavily discovered and and discussed. I'm happy I'm the one who gets to do it, but it's really and truly, I would argue that the later Italian wars are actually more amplified uh, version of what had been going on over the previous decades. Well, it, it sounds like uh, this was about a, a point where things were about to tip over. Things were getting ready to <laughs> Absolutely, explode. to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do we have any clue of uh, preparations made in Italy to defend themselves? So, so again, and this is going to be um, individual um, ruling families making these moves. Um, now, another power I have not mentioned yet is Venice. Venice is a true wild card. Venice is neutral. Venice has a long history of a trade relationship with the Ottoman Empire. Um, Venice has decent relationship with France, but they also try to maintain a decent relationship with the with the Habsburgs. And, a de- and so, and so they the Venetians are arguably underneath the Ottomans. The Venetians probably had the most ships. And the largest fleet. So a lot of powers are vying for Venice because if you can get Venice, it can up, you can, you know, if the Ottomans right. and the French get to Venice, that's really going to get a lot of the naval power on their side. If they get, if, if the Habsburg side can get the Venetians, that's going to really bolster their forces because we like to think of this conflict as we'll say France versus Spain, but it's, it's again, it's France with the Ottomans and the Barbary Corsairs. And with Charles V's case, there's a Spanish fleet, but really that Spanish fleet is really comprised of Naples, Genoa, Tuscany, for example. You know, and there's a lot of smaller levels to that. So I can say, for example, the um, what you really see happening is so with the Medici having been established in in Florence, you really see them go from you see Florence go from you know it's famous as a cultural center, but it's now becoming a military. It's getting the foundation to become a military powerhouse. Uh, again, uh, Cosmo tapping into this is Cosmo de' Medici becomes Duke of Florence in in um, fifteen thirty seven. He's uh, a, a late teenager, I believe he was around eighteen years old, and so he's here. He comes into power at the very end of this tail end of this this kind of uh, state this that stage of the Italian wars before this big piece, and he uses that piece building a fortifications, building up a navy, uh, or try, or at least getting it started, uh, acquiring troops, feeding into these networks. And so that's what you really see is it kind of, it's time a time of regrouping and trying to build up business agreements and build and repair fortifications and things to be ready for war. So indeed that's what you see that, um, it's a time of 
of of peace, but it's a like in times of peace, prepare for war is what you're certainly seeing. Could you talk a little bit more about what an army and a navy would look like during this time? Absolutely. Now, no, we do we do you mean organizationally or technologically? A little bit of both. What, a little bit of both. A little Let's bit of both. Okay. Well, see, one thing I love about this period of time is so it's 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 both so medieval, but also so modern. And so you're going to see things on, we'll say, both on the battlefield and at sea. You're going to see firearms, um, matchlocks. You're going to see artillery, uh, cannons, um, and, and, and so forth. And of course, you'll see, like, kind of primitive uh, matchlit grenades and bombs and things like that. But you're also going to see guys in full plate armor, and swords and spears and halberds and axes and 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 then of course the Ottomans, uh, it's not because they're primitive; it's just because they're very good at it. Actually, still use bows and arrows. They're still using archery quite a bit, and so you really have everything at play. And so these these warriors, whether they're at sea or at land, really have to be familiar with a lot of fighting systems. And so what you actually have that's very interesting in this period is people that are just extremely skilled we'll say with early firearms for example and and it's not it's a science but it's like a feeling it's an art form again this is the renaissance after all so there's not i think we have in our modern mind this division between we'll say humanities and stem and back then those were one and the same so you you so you have and so you're having war being treated as a science but also as an art form organizationally um Again, we're going to think of it like as a French military or a Spanish Habsburg military. They're really probably not many of your troops are going to be from Spain or from France. Um, they're the, the, the German Lonsnecht mercenaries are involved. You have Swiss mercenaries involved. Um, you have, uh, you know, sometimes... And, and again, even though Venice was officially maybe neutral for, the, for a lot of the times, Venetians trickle in especially selling their expertise to build ships you, you know, so so it's 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 really i think what i like to tell people is the early modern period is actually much closer to our modern our contemporary globalized world than i think people would initially think so really what you have by and large is mercenaries uh, paid and hired troops, experts in some of these newer technologies and thing, and and so um, and and that goes down all the way down to using the weapons on the ground to building ships, building fortifications that can withstand art, uh, cannon and, and, and etc. Um, so and 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 these these armies are getting are getting massive. I mean, in Italy, you'll, you'll it's nothing to see a force of 10 or 20,000 against another force of 10 or 20, you know, and again, this is a medieval world and there's firearms and there's, and so, and then of course they, those armies require, um, uh, followers for the logistics and for food and taking care of the animals and all that stuff. So you, you have, it's everything you have cavalry, infantry, artillery, and the the navies to kind of get on that point a little bit more. The ship, the main, the main, the main vessels in use in the Mediterranean at this time are are war galleys, and again, this is the Renaissance, and there had been a a Renaissance and in interest in ancient Greek warfare, and the ancient Greek style triremes and galleys were being kind of revisited, and so you have this maneuverable vessel 
with cannons on it. So whereas the ancient Greek trireme had the battering ram on the front that they could row very fast into another ship, now they have cannons on the front of them. <laughs> and so and so you see most of the tactics are boarding tactics, um, but uh, a lot of times, would you, especially what you see with the Venetians and actually what you will see with uh, Cosimo de' Medici in Florence as well is more... Um, distant, uh, are t- actually aiming to sink the ship in the first place before the boarding ever takes place. So to shortly answer your question, it's it's this period of time where it's kind of old meets new and there's it's sort of like when you have water and oil and things <laughs> mixing together and it's sort of, and it's just like a lava lamp. It just kind of <laughs> changes a lot. It's really, really, a, really a wild time, fascinating time to, to be around to say the least. <laughs> that is absolutely fascinating. So we We've set up the alliances, the men, the military, the economy. So how does this war ultimately break out, this conflict? So it's a proxy war, as you said. So it's a a lot of it. So first of all, the uh, Ottoman allies in North Africa start getting a little antsy and lead raids um, in on the Italian coast in on the on the Spanish coast and so that's not sitting too well because they know that there's rumors sometimes that the French are with them doing this no one can confirm or deny this um, you have um, uh, there's another family in Italy the Farnese a very uh, uh, at least from the medieval period very well established um, in the papacy and in and and, and and basically long story short Charles V and the French have familial ties in the family and they end up siding with the French and so there's a territorial dispute between between uh, the, the, the Farnese and, and the Pope, because the Pope at the time was actually on the side of the Habsburgs. And so the Pope, papal forces and the Farnese are at war, but who's really at war is the French backing the Farnese and the Habsburgs backing the Pope. And eventually this is fired up in North Africa. It's firing up in, uh, you know, with the Corsairs and it's firing up in Italy with the Farnese and the Pope. And, and it eventually just it is clear what's going on. And so the war has broken out officially. So where do we see conflict? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> that's a great question. So one place that keeps getting revisited uh, and raided is the island of Elba. Uh, you see a conflict erupt on Corsica. You see, uh, of course, in Italy, uh, the big targets are are usually so the, um, they're usually um, trying to go into northern Italy. So Henri, by this point, Francis the first has passed away, and his son Henri has become uh, king of France. Now Henri was initially not interested in Italy as much. He was just wanted to try to secure the border between him and Charles V. Um, but you know, Henry, he his wife. Interestingly enough, was Catherine de Medici, who was related to the family. And again, we like to think of the Habsburgs or the Medici as these kind of big, happy families, and they're quite the opposite. Just because they're from the same family doesn't mean that there's family familial rivalries. It's it's one thing that's very interesting in this time period that um, uh, a lot of the big decisions are actually being made because of what would maybe seem to as kind of trivial family feuds, uh, and, and 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 so. The French uh, court was filled with these anti, in this case, anti-Medici courtiers. But you also, you get representatives in the king's court. But really, in general, they're like instigating Henri. Like, hey, 
go to Italy, you know, they start war because of course they're looking out for themselves. They're like, hey, we can use this war to benefit ourselves in some way. And uh, and so so you're seeing um, uh, Henri start to push. He's tr- he has grand strategy of taking Corsica and using that as a base to, between his holdings in North Italy and Corsica to get Genoa. He has aims of of move, and he also has aims of again because of who his wife is and family members of hers. He wants to move into Florence and Tuscany, and so he does this by going into Siena. And the War of Siena is a really big deal in terms of of of. of the French really get a pretty good foothold there, and it takes and that's right in the middle of Italy, and so it's a really that's a tough one. Um, you you they they have ambitions of going into southern Italy where the Spanish were, but that never really manifests. But what you really see during the Italian wars in this later half, the big places I would say are Siena, Corsica. Um, every now and then Elba is raided. Um, and then also there's several c- campaigns in North Africa at various points um, of either the Corsairs uh, moving against Spanish uh, garrisons or presidios there in, in, in North Africa, um, or sometimes there's outright amphibious attacks that the, that the uh, Habsburg side makes to try to kind of stop that Corsair front because the Corsairs, if the Cor- if they if they don't move against the Corsairs, the Corsairs are going to move against them. And so it's, uh, I would say the whole Western Mediterranean, you're seeing a lot of action, to say the least. And then that's just part of this war. We need to keep, we need to keep in mind is that really and truly, the Ottomans are in and out of it all the time because they're also facing Safavid Persia in what would be today Iraq. The Ottomans are also trying to move into Central Europe. They're moving into like Hungary and places. They've moved into Hungary and they're pushing forward into places like that. And then you have the French moving into like the Netherlands and the Low Countries and on the Rhine and in Germany and stuff like that. Okay, so you, you, what you, what you really have here is a conflict that goes from Spain and the Western Mediterranean all the way to the Middle East. In some ways, now it's not all coordinated. It's not all, um, you know, it's 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 not like this, this like World War One or two or something like that. Or this, but but in a sense, that's what's happening. That's the reality. Is that Italy is actually just one front of a much larger, grander conflict with these big powers at the time, especially Charles V, um, it's versus Francis and Henri. With Suleiman, so then Suleiman, the Corsairs. Earlier on, Henry VIII in England had actually even been involved at different points as well. So it's 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 a European wide conflict in some shape or form. But with Italy itself, the big place I would say are Siena and Corsica would probably be the two biggest fronts. And again, those are aims of Henri to try to get a foothold in Italy. Do we see any major battles? Anything of note? Oh. <laughs> That's a great question, Mac. Um, so um, I would so I would say that um, per, so um, the, the the really the the it's really a small war on Corsica. There 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 it heats up and and cools off the whole time. Um, the French sometimes own the whole, whole island, and then Genoese kind of on the and on the Spanish behalf take it back, and the Spanish working with the Genoese take it back. That's back and forth. Siena, first of all, there's the ongoing siege of Siena, the city itself. But there's also a lot of conflict going on in the areas surrounding Siena. And even once the city surrenders, once Siena surrenders in, in, in 1555, uh, the conflict's not over. 
the French are have a lot of holdings on the coast. Um, the the there's the um, and so so you have like there's an initial the the French and Siena have one shot that they take against uh, sent, taking out Cosimo, who's a key Habsburg ally, um, but at the Battle of Margiano and really. There was miscommunication on the French behalf. Their ships actually, the Ottomans had decided not to help them this time. There's this big scramble, so things go awry, and this gives the Medici the advantage to keep the French in Siena. And so then that's why by the next year they take Siena, but the war is not over. They they go to the coast, and there's there's more. It's a bunch of, it's really, it's a combination of sieges and outright assaults on these fortified holdings, and um, the pitched battles happen on the ground, but really by this era, it's more siege or uh, trying to infiltrate these these fortified holdings. At sea, you you will see that you'll you'll see the you'll um, you'll witness the the galley fleets. Every now and then they'll encounter one another, but in general, it's these small squadrons kind of uh, facing each other. You don't really have a large pitched naval battle that 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 happens um ex- unless it's a it's a um amphibious aspects of some of these sieges i've been talking about in italy or in in, in north africa well so <laughs> and i could talk about any specific ones you want but I <laughs> of course well uh so with all of this happening how ultimately <laughs> does this come to a close uh on on dies <laughs> Um, really and truly this was something that people in Italy were looking at and all the all the counselors on all sides were saying look there's gonna this is gonna have to come to a close at some point because the French were kind of running out of steam again Um, but Henri had every intention of firing that back up at some point and um as much as they were talking about alliances and, and, and Philip II, who's Charles V's son, he becomes king of Spain. They were setting up a marriage alliance. Uh, they are setting up a marriage alliance with him. But before they set up, he sets up a marriage alliance with Henri's daughter. He's married to Henry VIII's daughter, Mary, Bloody Mary, to have that central position so that he can manage the conflict in the Netherlands and from Spain and he'd be in that central position. Um, so really both sides had every intention of carrying forth, but what really happened is Charles V had died and, and powered passed to his son Philip II, in, in Spain at least, um, and and Henri died actually unexpectedly in a jousting accident. And so with that, um, it was just it, – it, 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 it just sort of kind of imploded once those personalities were were out of the out of the picture it it, it, it the conflict just sort of imploded on itself it, people had been fighting for decades and decades and decades and 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 finally there was no one to stir the pot so to speak and so that was again i would say this conflict it's key to understand the personalities at all levels whether we're talking about the monarchs and emperors or we're talking about the the people on the ground because it's those were the things that really shaped the turn of events. So how did this uh, impact the political landscape of Italy? Well, in, 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 in some regard, it took, it took everyone a little while to realize that, okay, these, this really is over. Um, so you actually, you see a heavy investment in, in, in building up these fleets, for example, and building up troops, because everyone's like, well, there's a good chance this is going to happen again. So you, you see that happening, for, and there is the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, and that does 
sort of help. I don't want to say it doesn't unite Italy. That's going too far. But it does sort of uh, get uh, kind of get them out of their local politics and more in the bigger grand strategy of saying, hey, you know, the Ottoman Empire is moving this way. You know, we are the, you know, we as Christendom need to stand up against the Ottoman Empire. And you do see that brief moment where, again, it's going too far to say that you're united, but I would say, again, if we go back to antiquity, it's sort of like the Greek city-states in the face of Persia and the Persian yeah. Wars. You know, and like, to clarify, the Battle of Lepanto was a conflict between the Holy Roman Empire, uh, the Italian city-states, and the Ottomans, correct? Right, so so in a, in technically you're correct. So the, the, the Battle of Lepanto was a uh, essentially um, Holy Roman Empire in Spain very much because they're both Habsburg. So it was actually one of Charles V's sons, Don Juan. He was one of his illegitimate sons, I must add. He was the commander of the, of the Christian or Holy League. Um, but mainly it was Venice, uh, Genoa, uh, uh, Tuscany or Florence, the Pope, Naples, Spain, United against um, the the Ottoman Empire and the Barbary Corsairs. Now, you notice I didn't mention France in there, and this actually goes back to your earlier question. What's another interesting thing about France is once Henry II dies, France enters the French Wars of Religion, and that's another big key thing that's happened here and that's changed the political landscape. Everybody's been counting on France to be kind of this counterweight, we'll say, to the Habsburgs. Well, the French are now occupied in their own conflict with their own rival families and their own rival branches of families, and everyone's everyone's kind of like, "What's where's France? <laughs> like, what's <laughs> what's going on? What's going on here?" And and so that's um so you have that, and you have this this kind of rejuvenated, we'll say, crusade mentality fighting the Ottoman Empire um, at Lepanto in 1571. and that's a that's a, a big victory for the for the Holy League or the Christian side, the Ottomans lose most of their fleet. Um, I'm using Ottoman very loosely here. We need to remember that a lot of their fleet was coming from these North African Corsair enclaves. One of them does survive. Uh, their, their commander, um, Ulaq Ali, was very, uh, or Ulaj Ali, I should say, um, was very, uh, was wily to say the <laughs> least. They got the boy. But in general, the Ottomans pretty much lose their fleet. Um, they rebuild one by the next year, but we need to remember that they, um, the Manpower, um, that's another story to replace experience. Again, I mentioned this time period, warfare, success often equates to your experience and knowing how to use the technology. Now, in terms of the political landscape of Italy itself, um, by this point, the Medici have been firmly established as not just dukes but grand dukes. Um, They've been elevated in, in importance. Um, you still, and, and but you're starting to see. So Lepanto is this brief, shining moment of kind of Italy, kind of reclaiming this. Like you, as you open this conversation as this center of of uh, economic success and cultural center, it's not that that stuff goes away, but rest of Europe is starting to catch up. And Venice, for example, is starting this kind of long process of decline. Um, the 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 Medici in Tuscany, the Genoa, Naples. Again, it's not that they're irrelevant or out of the picture, but they're just they're becoming. There's no longer this grand conflict to be a part of anymore. They're 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 more. It's kind of back to where they started. It's more rival with each other instead of playing a huge part into the grand strategy of things. 
dealing with fighting off Corsairs and fighting off each other. <laughs> that's, that's sort of where what they end up. And so finally, what impact uh, did these wars have on the um, cultural and historical memory of Italy? That's a that's an ex that's an excellent question. Um, I mean, even at the time this is happening, you 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 kind of have these um, views of like that Italy is back in ancient Rome and the barbarians have invaded, and they're talking about the French and the Spanish, uh, Italians all over the map. They 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 feel they kind of feel this idea of that that people see them as this pawn, and that these different families and these and and these city states are these pawns in this in this larger game um, and, and and people do see that even at the documents at the time of the 16th century yes there's Venice and there's Genoa and Milan and you know in Florence and Rome etc but you see this concept of Italian as well they understand there is some level here a shared history. And yeah, maybe they have different dialects, but there is a shared language at some level. And again, I'm sorry I keep referencing ancient Greece, but there's such a parallel here that the ancient Greeks go through this as well in like in these moments that they see they know their differences, they have their history, but they see their similarities as well. And so again, I'm going I would be going way too far to say that Italy is united and one big happy family and one united country, but certainly this in the memory, um, by the time we do get to that nineteenth century, Italy has undergone centuries of back and forth with say in this case French and the Spanish. Later on it's the Austrians and the French, and that, and it takes. So you have the Italian wars, and then you have Napoleon. And Napoleon doesn't necessarily treat them like a pawn. He creates the Kingdom of Italy, and so now this idea that they kind of recognize these similarities that really, in a way, this conflict does bring to their attention at some level. Now that they've had this experience, this kingdom of Italy, we'll say by the 18th or century, 19th century, early 19th century, that's where you start seeing the Risorgimento and this Italian unification movement really take off. Because so, so the the idea is there. I would say that in some ways the Italian wars plant a seed, the in the Renaissance plant a seed. Napoleon cultivates that seed. And then once Napoleon's gone and it's kind of back to where it was, the, Pol- the Italians are like, whoa, 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 you know, not so fast. You know, we, we, we see something here. Now, of course, this is not unanimous, but certainly there's a big f- uh, fraction of Italy that does experience this uh, perception. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Andrew Tavares, and thank you for tuning in to Dialogues with the Past, a High Point University history podcast. Please tune in next time for a new episode with a new expert.